God's salvation of souls are so precious to him that if someone would preach a different gospel, a message contrary to the original one found in God's word, it's what we would call another gospel or maybe even today fake news. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, and beginning today in a message entitled, Three Angelic Preachers, Dr. Brogy will be looking at a contrast between the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, and the Beast, who is the Antichrist. In this chapter, we'll also see a contrast between heaven and earth, and between the doomed and those who are saved. One day, you and I are going to die. I'm going to die. Everyone within the sound of my voice will die. The only factor that will mitigate against that is if Jesus comes and catches up his church. And then even, in a sense, those who are raptured die, for it is appointed for a man to die once. And then comes the judgment. It's a different kind of death, though, in the twinkling of an eye in a moment. Our old body is shed, and we are given a new body resurrected to walk on streets of gold. But unless you meet God in the rapture, you will meet God. And of course, there are different ways in which people greet death. Some die by disease, by cancer, by heart attacks. Some die in their sleep. Some die by accident. Some die while they're awake. But you cannot escape death's grip. But while there are only, while there are many, many ways in which you can die, in the end, when you take all the air out of the balloon, there's only two ways in which you can die. You will either die as a saved person or you will die as a lost person. I look here in my text at verse 13 and he describes those who are blessed if they die in the Lord. If you were to die today or Jesus were to return, You are either in the Lord Jesus, in His righteousness, clothed in forgiveness, or you are still in your own righteousness, and if He finds you that way, you will be eternally doomed. And so this is a very, very important chapter of Scripture because it's a cry from heaven to decide. God made you as a free moral agent. He gave you a free will. And while you are free to choose, you are not free not to choose because not to choose is to choose. There is no such thing as neutrality in the Bible. And this chapter will underscore that. Now, for the benefit of those joining us for the first time, and for the rest of our edification, because I want us to know the book, let me just briefly set the context today. This is one of the books in the Bible by which God himself gives the outline of the book. And I think it was critical that he did that because it's a challenging book and he doesn't want us to be confused by it. This is a book that if you read it and heed it, the scripture promises you'll be blessed by it. The outline for the book, of course, is in Revelation 119. John is commanded to write the things which you have seen. He did that in chapter 1. He recorded for us that vision of the glorified Christ. Write the things which are. He does that in chapters 2 and 3. The present day, seven churches that are functioning as he is alive there in the Isle of Patmos. And then the things which will take place 
after these things. That's the future. So chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22 brings us to the third section of the outline, the after these things section of the book. If you remember in chapters 4 and 5, we were given a vision of heaven. It's a vision of the future. And of course, in chapter 4 and verse 1, twice over, so we could not miss it, keying off of the outline he gave us in 119, the outline ends with, after these things. 4.1 begins and ends with the words, after these things. That signals you that you're in the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. After these things, I looked. Behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what will take place after these things. And so John is caught up through an open door. We call that the rapture, the catching up of the church. In Greek, it's harpazo. From the Latin translation, we get our word rapture. And so if you remember in chapter 4, you see the church that is there in the throne room of God, and they are worshiping the living God. In chapter 5, you see the Lord Jesus, who's described in two terms. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That speaks of his right to rule. And so from the right hand of the Father, he takes the seven-sealed scroll and he begins to unleash judgments upon the earth such that as Psalm 110 teaches, God will make his enemies his footstool. But not only is he the judge as the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's also described as the Savior. He's the lamb that was slain. But not only is this lamb slain in the fifth chapter, this lamb is standing because he's victorious. He has overcome the grave, declaring his ability to take the title deed from the Father's hand and to claim, indeed, the earth as his, as his own. So around the throne were 24 thrones, 24 elders. And we saw that these were not angels. We saw that these were not Israelites. We saw that these were members of the church, leaders of the church. We studied how 24 was a representative number of a large multitude of people. And so these 24 elders, along with us, we will be in this scene that we studied in the fourth and fifth chapters. We will witness it if you are born again. We will be there. These 24 elders are representative of the church at large. Then when you come to chapter 6, it's a watershed chapter. And so chapter 6 all the way through 18 begins to unfold the judgments of God. What will happen on the earth after the church is removed. That's what those chapters indeed answer for us. And we've seen that there are three principal sets of seven in which God brings his judgment upon the earth. First comes the seal judgments, and it is principally an expression of how the world is ruined by man. Then after this seal judgment, if you remember, come the trumpet judgments. And during the time of the trumpet judgments, we see the earth is ruled by Satan. Satan is literally cast down to the earth with millions of demons. And there they are 
wreaking havoc against people who are upon the earth. But then the bold judgments will come. We haven't gotten there yet. That's chapters 15 and 16. And that will be the time in which God will rescue this world. And once those are complete, the end will come. Now, with that brief context, let's read our text. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Follow along in your Bibles. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, has it ever occurred to you that virtually every major religion or sect in the world in some way acknowledge that there are angels or spirit guides that are at work? And of course, you need to always underscore in your thinking that everything that is spiritual is not spiritually good. Paul warned the church at Ephesus, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. If you've been through the discovery class, which meets in both hours, and if you haven't, I highly commend it to you. In the 9.30 or the 9.15 hour has some seats, and it would be the best time to come, as I told them in the last service. But it's for three groups of people, brand new Christians, those who have never been discipled in basic truth. And uh, Dr. Billy Graham said that in his judgment, 90 to 95% of the genuine believers in America have remained baby Christians. They've never grown up. And the third group are mature Christians who want to know how to disciple someone else. And I would say to parents, before your children graduate from high school, they should go through it at least once, if not twice. It's a foundational class. And in the discovery class, we teach that there are three forces that wage war against the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world refers to the world system around us that's opposed to God, that caters to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. A simple definition of the world is the society around us that is being energized by the prince of the power of the air. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. It says the world around us 
is not happening accidentally, that there is an evil one who is energizing the sons of disobedience. Then we wage war against the flesh, not referring to the skin that covers our skeleton, but to that fallen endemic nature within that we inherited from Adam because when Adam sinned, we all sinned in and with Adam. It's that proclivity that is opposed to God. And so by nature, by birth, by choice, we're all sinners. But third, we wage war against the devil and his demons called in the text we just read, rulers, powers, and forces of darkness. And Satan has an army of fallen angels. We studied back in Revelation 12 and verse 4 how a third of all the angels that rebelled with Satan, that all of the fallen demons, with the exception of those in the abyss, will be cast down to the earth. Now, right now, we are in a spiritual battle. We studied when we worked through Daniel in preparation for the Revelation in the 10th chapter, this unseen war that is happening and angels fighting angels over countries and nations and states and different zones, even, I'm sure, places like the city that we live in. In addition, we are in a war that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And the Bible warns us, especially in the last of the last days, that there would be doctrines of demons. And so remember, angels were all created at once, never to make any more. There are no new angels. You don't go to heaven and get your angel wings. You don't say, well, he's now an angel in heaven. That's stinking rotten theology. It's inaccurate. God made one number of angels, some that are holy and elect, some that are fallen. And so God warns us in Galatians chapter 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. It's the word anathema. It literally means damned to hell. God says that through Paul by the Spirit, Because God's salvation of souls are so precious to him that if someone would preach a different gospel, a message contrary to the original one found in God's word, it's what we would call another gospel or maybe even today fake news. Now, don't get me wrong. Angels are awesome. They are greater in power and might than we are. They radiate the glory of God, but right now they are not preachers. I mean, think your way through this. Why is it that the Lord Jesus did not commission angels to take the gospel to the world, but he commissioned believers who are still fallen? Why did he commission us? Because during the church age, he's building his church through believers who have experienced the grace of God. Paul in, or Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, if you'll bring that slide up, he reminds us, it was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things that angels long to look into. Concerning the salvation that the prophets wrote of that we had preached to us through faithful preachers of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is something that angels long to look into. 
Now, the word here, to look into, is an interesting word. It's the exact same verb that's used to Peter and John when on that first Resurrection Sunday, they go and they look and peer and study the empty tomb. And so God is picturing the eagerness of angels as if they're bending down from the battlements of heaven and they're studying the church. In the margin of the New American Standard on this verse, it says, things into which angels long to look and to gain a clear glimpse. Now remember, angels are not redeemed. Only people will be redeemed. Angels, when they send, they are forever settled in their destiny. But we came into a world where there were already fallen angels, and that may be part of the reason by which God extends grace to man as he did not to them. But angels play a very prevalent role in Scripture. Even at the beginning of the creation, the Bible says the morning stars, a term for angels, sang at God's creation as he wove the world together. But before long, their song was turned to sadness. Or there in the Garden of Eden, man sinned against God. And I'm sure many of the holy angels watched and wondered what God would do. Can you imagine God calling a council together in eternity and saying to the angels, my creation is fallen. Man is a sinner. What must I do? And they probably would have said with one voice, judge man. But God says, no, man must be redeemed. And they long, they look, they study, how is it that God will redeem man? How will God remain just and holy and true to himself and yet at the same time forgive and release man of the judgment that he deserves? And so they stand on the outside. Every time we worship, First Corinthians tell us, our congregation is larger than we realize. There are angels that are studying, that are looking, that are listening to what we are saying and how we are even worshiping. Now, while angels can study our great salvation, they cannot experience it. It is those of us who have inherited salvation that are served by angels. But there is coming a day when the situation will be different. When only those, not only those who have experienced salvation will preach it, but angels will preach it. I mean, think your way through this for just a moment. During the church age, God is not using angels to preach the gospel. He's using saved, regenerate, born-again Christians. Remember in Acts the 10th chapter when Cornelius needs salvation? God doesn't send an angel and say, go preach to that man and tell him how to be saved. No, all the angel can do is to tell him how he and Peter can get together, and then Peter shares the plan of salvation. But during the tribulation, it will be different. But we would do well to heed the warning during the church age that Paul gives in Galatians 1.8. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, you, he is to be accursed. Now, he does not say, he doesn't rule out the possibility that an angel can preach the gospel. He doesn't say, oh, it will never happen. It is going to happen. But I want to tell you, in every instance, when an angel preaches in this age, he is given a sour, bad message. He has given another gospel. He has given a different gospel. Think about Islam. Muhammad received a call into the ministry through an angel that he named as Gabriel. He said for a long time he thought that this was a demon that was speaking to him, but eventually 
he recognized in his mind that it was an angel from God, and he was instructed to write down the Quran. It's a so-called revelation that was given to him 600 years after Christ by the angel Gabriel. Now, I'm always amused at Christmas when I get a Christmas card and they show the three wise men, if indeed there were just three, I don't know. I think probably many more. But in the background are these minarets in the first century. Of course, Islam does not come until 600 years after Christ. But as a faithful Muslim, you are taught that if you keep the articles of faith, if you follow the five pillars of the faith, that you can earn your way to heaven. They deny the substitutionary death of Jesus. In fact, it says in Quran 4, uh, verse 156, that Jesus did not die, but one in his life likeness died. And today, most Muslims say that that was Judas who died there. Think about Ellen G. White, the founder of Seventh-day Adventism. She too says that she was touched by an angel, and it was revealed to her hidden truths that were not found in the Bible. I suppose we could talk about William Branham, who also said that he had an encounter with a holy angel. He said that God sent a direct revelation to him that the doctrine of the Trinity was an evil doctrine. That in the Garden of Eden, that Eve had a relationship with the serpent. Uh, he denies the deity of Christ. And because he denies also the doctrine of the Trinity, when one is baptized in his group, you're baptized only in Jesus' name. And we have a whole congregation of people in our own community that follow the teachings of William Branham. Or consider Mormonism. They say that Elohim, or the Father, came down to earth and had a physical relationship with the Virgin Mary and that Jesus came about. And that Jesus was not eternal, that he was created. And of course, he tells us that uh, he had an encounter with the angel Moroni. Joseph Smith, of course, was a polygamist. Supposedly, when this angel came to him, these tablets that been, had been hidden for some 1,400 years were revealed to him. And of course, in Mormonism, the death of Jesus is not a payment for sin. His death is not substitutionary in nature. It is not an atonement that relieves you from the eternal wrath of God. You earn salvation. And they also argue that Jesus came and preached to the American Indians. And this was all revealed to Joseph Smith. Listen, a man's morality is often dictated by his theology. Now it's well documented and it's made a lot of Mormons disillusioned. The Mormon church cannot deny it. Joseph Smith had some 40 different wives. And they teach, according to the Book of Mormon, that if you are a faithful Mormon, that someday you will die and you will inherit your own planet and you will live as a polygamous God having spirit children. But interestingly, Mormonism has a lot of parallels to Islam. Both deny the deity of Christ. Both deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Both deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. Both deny the infallibility and authority of the Word of God. Both deny the true nature of God. And their book, Mormon's book, and the Quran have absolutely zero, not one, fulfilled prophecy. 
because God didn't write it. And so Paul's just warning us, and we could talk about Jehovah's Witness and their encounter with angels, or more recently, Stephanie Meyer and her encounter, she gave us the Twilight series. But Paul warns that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Here is the point that I want you to see, that while angels are not preaching during the church age, a time is coming when they will preach after the church is removed. Now, we've already studied in the Revelation that God will use 144,000 Jewish men to carry the gospel to the world. There will be two witnesses whom I suggested to you were Moses and Eliza. And then there are three flying angels who will preach there in midair. If you're taking notes this morning, three angels who give three sermons. The first angel preaches the judgment that has come. He preaches the judgment that has come. The first angel is preaching a sermon about an eternal gospel. And this gospel basically has three dimensions. He gives a good three-point sermons. Maybe he went to a homiletics class. I don't know. But in either case, first he reminds us that this gospel can be heard by all. It can be heard by all. Again, we read here in verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now, the Bible teaches that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God desires that none should perish. His heart is that all be saved. And so what we find here in verse 6 is this angel who's proclaiming the eternal gospel, and he's flying in midair. It's the word that literally means zenith. It was used in the first century to mark the spot when the sun, typically at noon, was at its highest point in the sky. The Antichrist won't be able to shoot this angel down, and no one will be able to ignore him. People will pour out into the streets, into the fields. They'll get out of their cars, and they will look, and they will hear this angel preach an eternal gospel. Now, remember, this is the time of the tribulation. This is the time in which you've already crossed the halfway point. You're in the second half of the tribulation, shortly after the abomination of desolation has taken place. And I'll show you that chronology when we come to the 17th and 18th chapter. But God has already poured a number of judgments upon the earth. He has let his wrath begin to unfold. And so here is this angel who is to preach to those who live on the earth into every nation and tribe and tongue and people. It's an amazing thought to consider. Now, think about this for a moment. You say, well, how is an angel going to preach in a way that everyone from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be able to understand his message? Well, God is big. Listen, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything, and that's why the devil attacks Genesis 1-1. In many ways, this is the flip of Pentecost. Do you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? In Acts 2-6, we're told the crowd came together, the 120 spill out from the upper room, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. These Galileans who, who didn't know all these other languages were speaking perfectly a foreign language, and not just the foreign language, but a dialect within the language. It was a miracle. Well, I suppose this will be the reverse. 
This angel will preach, and the people on the earth will hear the angel's message in their own language. And God is doing this because He's long-suffering. God is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish. God is pleading one final time for people to repent and to return. So this angel's message can be heard by all because they all hear it in their own language. Tomorrow, when we continue our message entitled, Three Angelic Preachers, Dr. Brogy will look at the eternal implications of the gospel. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478, and requesting program REV38. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing people to Jesus Christ and to growing Christians in their relationship with Him. We would be honored if you would come alongside us with a one-time or regular gift to allow us to broadcast these studies on radio stations and over the Internet. For more information, call 877-787-7478 or click the Give button online at searchthescriptures.org or using the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow, part two of Three Angelic Preachers. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.